Yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Uh, Let's give it up for, this is a new version of our theme music. Same theme music, just jazzed it up a bit, courtesy of our good friend, musician, singer, songwriter, producer, director, Frank Mayer, who was, Meyer, who was here in studio uh, just before the holidays. And Frank will be back again. Uh, He's running around now doing music videos and uh, got album releases and getting ready for a European tour with one of his bands uh, that he's in. But, uh, yeah. So, let us know what you think about that. What do you think about it, Pam? And she sits there, nods her head, and gives a thumbs up. That's about the best reaction we're going to get from Pam. Um, She's sitting in the booth cold. It's very cold in the studio today. Uh, But, welcome, welcome. This is Behind the Lens, and I am Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, the production designers, costume designers, uh, sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, authors, composers, even choreographers, and you name it. I'm hoping, uh, actually, to be honest, I'm trying to set something up in the future uh, to have some grips uh, come in and chat about their work on film and television production. Because there's, you know, it's one of those unsung jobs people don't think about. Um, But for right now, that is who I am and what we do here at Behind the Lens. And I'm very excited about today's show. Coming back for a repeat performance uh, is writer-director Ben Epstein. Ben was with us, joined us last March uh, for his film, Who Are You People? Uh, While it was on the festival circuit. The film is now out. It was just released on Friday in uh, select theaters and on VOD. Um... So it's a joy to have Ben come back to talk about the film and talk about his journey in going from the festival circuit to a distribution deal. Because there are a lot of moving parts that happen in there, plus a lot of things you have to consider uh, when entering into a distribution deal. So I'm excited we're going to get to speak with Ben about the next leg of his journey to get Who Are You People? Uh out into the public now. So I'm very, very excited about that. But first, (laughs) you've heard me mention it briefly. You've seen me go crazy on social media if you follow me on socials. Um, Cocaine Bear is out. Cocaine Bear is in the theaters. Elizabeth Banks has a definite winner on her hands. She directed the heck out of this movie. And Cocaine Bear is... You know, truth is stranger than fiction. And Cocaine Bear is based on true incidents that happened back in the 1980s. Uh, This particular incident involved a former attorney turned drug trafficker, uh, Andrew Thornton, who he would run drugs in small Cessna planes across the border. 
Um, back in the 80s, there was a great clampdown uh, on crossing the border and drug trafficking coming in, which is when boats and planes and other accoutrements were utilized uh, and really started springing up uh, as means to transport drugs from south of the border. Uh, but in this particular incident, well, his method was fly a plane in, and then drop duffel, duffel bags filled with cocaine, drop them in various points throughout the Appalachian Mountains, uh, the Blue Ridge, down into the Chattahoochee National Forest, down, it starts in northern Georgia and wraps on down uh, south. And I happen to know about the Chattahoochee because my aunt lives near there. Uh, and the Chattahoochee River is right there with the Hanahatchee Creek as an offshoot of it. So, it's, you know, all those areas are very wooded. So, you drop something, it's going to, unless people know where it is and you've got a tracker or something happening, nobody's ever going to look for it. In this particular, and it had been very successful for Thornton, but in this particular case, he jumped out carrying his last duffel bag with the cocaine. His head hit the tail of the plane. Um, based on autopsy reports, that it appears that's what happened. He plummeted to the ground because he was unconscious, couldn't open his parachute, went splat. Uh, three months or so later, this black bear, this grizzly, this is dead. Next to this ripped open duffel and ripped open bricks of can- of cocaine. And uh, it made all the news. It made network news. It was on CNN. It was on Nightline. It was on, you know, ABC, CBS, NBC. Uh, The film even incorporates uh, Tom Brokaw's coverage of it. I think it's Brokaw. Uh, So that you see that it is true. This is not a manufactured story. What is manufactured is brilliant screenwriter Jimmy Warden. And you may know Jimmy's work from The Babysitter Killer Queen that McGee directed. Um, Jimmy took the true story and then hypothesized because necropsy reports all said the bear died instantly. It appeared he died instantly when you ingest a 70-pound brick of cocaine. Um, But what if he had not? And this is what Jimmy starts with. The what if the bear did not die, but went on a cocaine-fueled rampage. And it takes off from there, and it is hilarious. And yes, you will be rooting for the bear. Um, it is fun. There are some really sweet, charming moments. And one of the most poignant aspects of Cocaine Bear is this is the last film that Ray Liotta shot. Uh, before he passed away, he finished um, his ADR, his, you know, post-shooting audio enhancements uh, one week before he passed. So this is, a, and he still, there are two, still two more films coming out that we know of uh, that he is in. But Cocaine Bear was the one, the last one that he filmed. And I got to tell you, what a way to go out with this as part of your legacy. Um, So, I got to chat with Jimmy Warden uh, the other week, 
and everything was embargoed until the, just before opening. So I thought, I'm just holding it for today. So you, all of you, get to hear this interview first. My exclusive interview with screenwriter Jimmy Warden. Um, talking and laughing a lot about Cocaine Bear. Take a listen. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Debbie. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk with you. Uh, about Cocaine Bear. I am so in love with this film, it isn't even funny. I, I just went gaga over the trailer, and I saw the film, and I'm ready to pay money and see it again. That is the best reaction we've gotten so far. Thank you so much. I'm a big admirer of your work anyway, with the babysitter killer queen. But to see what you've done in terms of balls-to-the-wall comedy dark comedy with cocaine bear you have a sick and twisted mind my friend <laughs> thank you thank you that's what uh that's what i'm told and i and that's exactly what i wanted uh that's the exact reaction that we want out of out of an audience so thank well, you and what i love is i remember when this story came out back in the 80s it amazes me when uh, sitting in the bar talking with people, it's like the Cocaine Bear trailer comes on a TV and they go nuts. Oh, God, I got to see that film. That looks so insane. And I tell them, well, it's based on a true story. And they're like, no. And it's like, yeah. Well, most of them aren't old enough to remember the news back in 1985. But this, right. this was the big way that drug runners were getting cocaine and other substances into the U.S., flying them in, dropping them in the Appalachians, down through the Chattahoochee National Forest, the whole eastern seaboard. There were even some drops into the Poconos in Pennsylvania. But I remember when this hit the news, and it was huge. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is so ludicrous. Somebody's got to make a movie. All right, so now, 40 years later, somebody's finally making a movie. <laughs> Isn't that always the way that it, that it goes sometimes, where it's just like, you know, you can't believe that somebody hasn't done it before, but uh, I'll tell you, I didn't think that it ever was going to be made into a movie, you know, even if I, after I wrote the script, um, or while I was writing the script, and I think that it kind of allowed me to obviously depart from the true story mm -hmm. um but you know it kind of allowed me to take all those risks and just like go crazy because i was like well no one's ever gonna see this movie <laughs> maybe nobody will ever read this script so i i might as well just do what i want um <laughs> and there you have it <laughs> well you you actually stay true to the facts in terms of a former lawyer and doing the drug drop and oops he dies on the way down and then he's dead and then months later here's this bear with all of these empty bricks of cocaine around him i mean you you stayed true to that but then you and that in and of itself is funny enough and elizabeth really ups the ante with the visuals to make it funny but then you take it a step further and imagine what was happening as the bear was eating all of this cocaine <laughs> right right 
I think that what I had read was, you know, that the bear had most likely, like when it found the cocaine, it had most likely died within, you know, a couple minutes of an overdose, which is obviously, you know, pretty sad. And I was not about to make a sad movie. No. <laughs> and I wasn't going to write a movie called Cocaine Bear and then make it be a downer. No. Um, you know, cocaine is an upper. So the what I really wanted to do was change that narrative a, a tiny bit and make it my like weird fantasy of what would have happened if the bear hadn't died, you know, instead of it being the end of the Andrew Carter Thor Thornton story, this movie is the beginning of the cocaine bear story. And I think that's a brilliant way to take the story, to take the fact and turn it into a myth. So I've got to ask you, did you have to do any kind of research into a bear on cocaine? <laughs> um, no. The, I mean, that's, that that type of research is, I mean, it doesn't really exist. I mean, there's some bear experts that would give you, um, you know, a pretty good indication of what would happen if a bear did cocaine. And apparently that the, you know, bears would act kind of similar to humans in that, like, in terms of it having, like, an erratic behavior. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so... So, but also the fact that I, I just kind of, I didn't really do any research for that. And I kind of just took advantage of the fact that it hadn't really happened or nobody had really documented, really been able to document what, what a bear would act like on cocaine. So then I just kind of let my imagination run wild. And I was like, well, I know what some people act like on cocaine. But <laughs> the thing that about black bears is they're not really that dangerous so that's the other thing that we had was like well this black bear is sort of cute in the wild and that's what, what we give you in that first you know couple minutes of the movie and then it's like well they're actually very dangerous if they're doing cocaine <laughs> as are humans so we right. get it <laughs> exactly and you maintain the cuteness aspect of the bear Without without giving away spoilers, we get a big reveal in the third act that's beyond adorable. But leading up to it, you've got the bear sniffing up a brick of cocaine, and he sneezes. And it's just so cute. It's this outrageous sneeze. But it's so cute that there are a lot of awe moments with the bear here, I got to tell you. I think that, I, I, I think that, that is... Um indicative of the fact that I never saw this bear as the villain of the story. I mean, just as the best monster movies do it, like, can you create empathy for the monster? Um, who do we really care about? And like the, the, again, no spoilers for your readers, but for you and me, like, I really thought that the first decision that I made was like, this bear is not going to die at the end. Um, and also, let's give how much compassion do you have for that bear when you realize that, you know, how much she cares about her cubs? Mm -hmm. um, and, 
you know, in a weird way, that bear ends up protecting everybody at the end, and you you kind of reorient yourself in deciding who the who the villain of the story is, um, and also who the who the victims of to get a little heady more heady about it, like who the victims of the drug trade were, right? Um, like who were the perpetrators? Um, whose fault is it really? Because it's probably not the bears. <laughs> the cocaine fell out of thin air. And of course, then you bring in and you take your time developing this because there's a lot of players here that get affected. You do an amazing job with Margot Martindale's character as the ranger. Just hilarious as here she is with her guns and she's trying to be so tough, but then she's putting on perfume to enhance and entice her supervisor who is just beyond a total geek. And that's just inherent humor that comes with that because you can understand it. She's trying to be feminine in a non-feminine environment, but she's failing at both, clearly. I I think that that's what's so fun um, and why I'm so grateful that, you know, Liz came on and you know, really spent time with the characters and building up their personalities in that first act. And, you know, those were written, but with, uh, in the script, but like with different, under a different Helmer, like who knows, somebody could have just taken Cocaine Bear and made it into every other B movie, um, you know, weird B movie that you've seen, which I'm actually a fan of, but Liz, took the characters and she's like, no, we're going to spend time with them. And I think that what that does, what that creates is like, if you get to know these characters and their distinct personalities, independent of the bear, mm-hmm. that when they when they finally come into contact with the cocaine bear and they're yelling at each other and their personalities are just kind of, uh, you know, brought to the absolute extreme then that's going to create the true comedy of the movie. Um, And that's what I love. And that's exactly what happens. The characters are fun. We get Bob, Bob and his little dog, the little foo-foo dog. And we get Reba. And we've got a whole subplot happening here with big reveals happening late in the film. O'Shea Jackson Jr., I mean, his character is great. And you see character development in these characters, Jimmy. That's that's what's really surprising. When you look at the totality of the story and the film, there's character development. So these characters are not real. Some of them are not one note. The ones that carry through to the end, they don't have altercations. Some slightly maiming ones with the bear. We actually get to see a shift in them some growth in them or a decline in morality in them as the case may be but that really that struck me that you really put time into not making the characters one note on the page and then elizabeth picked up the mantle and ran with it so they're not one note on the screen either um a hundred percent i think that that's the that's the dream, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm so glad that it landed with you. Um, and I, I just kind of feel that if you 
spend enough time with the characters and you really build their backstories, um, I mean, then you're going to care when they're in peril. You're going to mm-hmm. care when they die. So I, I think that my rules were um, in, in writing a script, and this is something that Liz and I just totally uh, bonded over right at the beginning, that, like, if someone if someone's going to die, um, a main character is going to die, or, a, you know, you want it to be emotional, and you want it to mean something. And then for a lot of the other characters, it's like, and since this is a comedy, it's kind of like they have to be, you know, just a little annoying. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> like in the classic horror structure, it's the, you know, the... Um, the, the virgins never die and they live and you know who di- who's going to die first in every horror movie. Um, it's the people that are morally ambiguous. I think that when we're dealing with a horror comedy, it's the people who are just sort of vaguely annoying. <laughs> <laughs> you can kill, yeah, kill without having uh, too much of a conscience about it. Where you soar is the heart that you, get, that you and Elizabeth give this film with the kids with our two besties. Those kids are the real heart of this film because they see the bear, especially Henry, he sees him as a bear on cocaine. He ate the cocaine. But he's smart. He's a kid, but he's smart. He doesn't panic like a lot of the adults. And it's really interesting, but you see the kids beautifully played by Brooklyn and Christian, and they just melt your hearts because they immediately take to the bear before they even understand the situation at hand. Right. And that doesn't deviate. Yeah, what I'm worried about, I mean, that, that scene with the two of them when they find the cocaine was the first scene that I wrote. Um, and also kind of my favorite scene to write because what I loved was the innocence that they brought Mm -hmm. the whole thing Um, and you know it's just that age where you're you know kind of talking shit (laughs) about things that you have no idea about Um, you know you're able to understand things or like uh, I guess, I guess digest information without fully comprehending it, or only comprehending about fifty percent of it, mm-hmm. and then you're trying to impress each other. I mean, we were all there, right? Um, and I think that it's just you know that casting is perfect. The way that Liz did it is so funny, and it was it really kind of I I mean I thought that if a reader was able to get past, you know, it was, it was, since it, it used to be the opening of the movie, I think Liz rightfully changed it, but I think that it, as a sales piece for me, as a screenwriter, I wanted to start with something that was like, if you can get past these first 10 pages, the 12-year-olds eating, you know, spoonfuls of cocaine in the woods, and then getting attacked by the bear who also did that cocaine. If you can make it past those first 10 pages, 
then you're going to be in for the entire movie, oh. for the entire rest of the script, you know? Um, and then Liz came in and kind of restructured it in a way that I think it definitely plays better. But that, just as the screenwriter, I was like, let me start with this, start out with a bang and something that most people haven't really seen. And then I know that unless you see it, if you just read it, if you just saw it on paper or something like that, then it could be controversial. But once you see it in the movie, it's kind of sweet. <laughs> it, well, and even on the, on the page, I would have just been laughing my ass off to read that on the page. Yeah. Because you also have to remember the time period. It's the 1980s. Yeah. We're given a preface, so we understand that. It's the 1980s. Mores were a lot different. We were not, the world wasn't, hasn't gone crazy with being woke. And kids were doing stupid stuff. So yeah. I would have been laughing to read that on the page. I love the way the film does open. It's really funny. but And then it just escalates from there. But for my money, it would have worked the other way as well. Yeah, and I think that, that honestly, it's, a, it's, the, it's the collaboration with Liz was so fun that... There was never like a question in my mind that uh, that sort of restructuring it in this way, so you sort of build to that sweet moment, mm -hmm. um, you know, a little later in the film was actually was the right thing to do. But I I'm more speaking of it in terms of a, you know, how do you make a splashy start? Like I hadn't I had written a lot of things I hadn't gotten many things made. I was working, but um, I really wanted to have, I really wanted to make a splash. And I think that when you have a script called Cocaine Bear, you got to kind of just hit the ground running. Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree. Now, I'm curious, the dialogue here, how strictly did Elizabeth stick with the dialogue that you had written on the page or was that kind of in a flux between the two of you and then as filming went on? No, the dialogue is, uh, was definitely, most of it was written. Of course, there was some, there's some improv and adjustments that the actors make as they do, but only for, um, only to make it better, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, the dialogue was, we kind of, I kind of always thought of it of, as like writing this, um, you know, almost like a, a Coen Brothers movie uh, <laughs> with, the, with these weird characters <laughs> and putting them in, like, this insane circumstance. Um, so, yeah, the, oh, the majority of the dialogue, we're trying to take all the credit, but, yeah, that was that was written in the script. No, so I want to be careful. You know, I, I, I don't want to... Uh, I, d I definitely want to take credit for my part in it, but I want to also insist that this was a, a collaboration and everybody just, like, definitely, when things changed, they were changed for the better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Curious, when, in your writing process, because this is a, ve a very visual film, some screenwriters, they love to write out the visuals, almost as if they're storyboarding or shot listing when they're writing mm -hmm. a screenplay. Because there are so many sight gags in this film, 
did you make note of those? Did you leave that to Elizabeth and the two of you once you started working on it? What was that like? Because some of the sight gags are just great. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe a lot of people would think that uh, I overwrote some of the sight gags and the and the action set pieces. Um, but those were always sort of in my mind. I mean, with the an ambulance set piece, for example, um, the ambulance chase, like the bear going slow-mo into, like jumping slow-mo into the uh, back of the ambulance was written into the initial spec. But things like it bursting through the sign, the Chattahoochee sign, and uh -huh. then running onto the road, like Liz and I spoke at length about this stuff to the point where it just became a total mishmash of our like both of our ideas to make what, and then also working with storyboard artists and the previs guys, like um, it's hard to really now look back on who's, and say like whose idea was whose because, and I think that's the best version of a collaboration, right? Absolutely. And Absolutely. Where just sort of, we're all on the, we were all on the same page, but there were definitely certain things that I remember um, you know, uh, writing into it in terms of those visuals. With visuals being so key here with the sight gags, I'm so thrilled. And that's part one of my exclusive interview with screenwriter Jimmy Warden talking about Cocaine Bear. You're going to get to hear the rest of the interview at the end of the show. Um, we're going to bookend the show with Cocaine Bear today. And hey, if by the way, if you're watching on the on the Adrenaline Radio Facebook page and you see our set dress today, I brought my own little I brought my own little Cocaine Bear to dress our set today. He's one one of my bears. Um he's I've only, I've had him about 30 years. Um I collect things cute thing you know cute little bears that can sit sit here on a tablescape as a cocaine bear stand in works for me um but also if you're watching you may notice we have grogu aka baby yoda adorning uh the set and why is that because wednesday is march 1st and the mandalorian season three returns so just Keep that in your mind for Wednesday. But right now, we're going to switch gears. And I promise, I promise, I, we will come back to the rest of Jimmy's interview uh, on Cocaine Bear. But right now, he's on the line. I'm bringing him back again. Ben Epstein Hi. is here. Hi, Ben. How you doing? Well, I am so thrilled for you, number one. When I got you. <laughs> uh, when I got Annie's blast uh, about this getting about who who are you people getting picked up and distributed by Gravitas, I was so excited, and I said, "Oh, Ben has to come back on the show." <laughs> well, it's a lot more fun to to talk about you know the movie when I can say, and now you can go see it, or yes. now you can order it, and now you can stream it, versus I don't know when you'll be able to see yes, it. Yes, it's on the festival circuit, and well, you just have to wait and see. And 
<coughs> and now yeah. it's it's out. It, it released on Friday. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are going head to head with Cocaine Bear, though. I'm sorry. Yes, I know. I think you know it was a it was a three way race between uh, Ant Man, Cocaine Bear, and me. And and you know we came up third, but that's okay. The thing that's is, Ant Man plummeted so badly on Friday. I'm surprised that you didn't make second. <laughs> um, you know, but yeah, it's tough. Of, of course, it's tough to go against Cocaine Bear. That's true. That's true. And, you know, I actually know a lot of the producers on Cocaine Bear, so oh. I'm very happy for them and their uh, their movie coming out. Well, you know, Mike... Because it looks like... I haven't gotten to see it. Oh. I have a... Uh, it looks fun. I have a little baby, so I the only time it's I got tough. to go to the theater was to see uh, my own film. <laughs> One would hope. Oh, my God. No, it's it's... It's hilarious. It is, I have just been chomping at the bit until I could actually talk about it. We were embargoed until last week, just before the film opened. Um, so I've been right. sitting on my interview with Jimmy Warden, who wrote it. And that's what was playing, you know, before you today. And, af- and, oh, after, cool. and after you and I wrap today, the rest of that interview will play. Um, and it, Because the whole idea of Cocaine Bear is just so insane. Uh I was hoping we could have a, um, an interview where we talked about all the overlaps and parallels between Cocaine Bear and Who Are You People, because I think they share a lot of the, the same themes you and know, a lot of the same coked-up bears. So, well, yeah. you know, we actually do, because we have an alcoholic biological father who... Okay, to be fair, I have not seen Cocaine Bear, so that, that is where I lose. <laughs> that's where I, <laughs> I, well, my no. joke... Yeah. Well, we okay. Well, we may have a bear on, on cocaine and cocaine bear, but in who are you people? We do have a father who is un, a biological father under the influence of alcohol. Well, eventually, yes, yes, and and uh, you know his uh, his sobriety in the movie is is something that I think the character is quite protective of, and yes. you know, without spoiling it, events in the movie do cause that to be challenged and you know I, I think it's it's always something to be careful of when you're when you're doing storytelling about um you know uh the trope of uh, someone falling off the wagon but mm-hmm. hopefully in this film we are in it you really do but you know for people that didn't listen last year when you were on the show uh and we didn't know where this film was going and i am so happy gravitas picked it up i told you gravitas would be one of the one of the companies one of the distributors. I think you did. <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting thing because, you know, getting films like this uh, distributed, it's all about having the right people championing it. And, and sometimes that's not the biggest fish in the pond. Sometimes that's yeah. the most determined fish in the pond. And I think that's what we learned um, when this film finally got picked up. Yeah, because it is a quality film. It truly is. And, you know, for everybody listening... Tell them for the new for new listeners who haven't aren't familiar with who are you people. Um, I like your title just because I can say it that way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but let tell everybody what is the premise because you wrote and directed this, and this is the yes. story is told from the eyes of sixteen year old Alex. Um, who is beautifully played by Emma Horvath uh, in the film. But, you know, it's the kind you very easily could have made our protagonist a boy, a girl, 
whatever. It's a 16-year-old struggling with new information in life, not to mention just being 16. Yes, she has an acute case of being 16. And, uh, and Emma Horvath, who, who plays her, is an absolutely astounding actress. And she's in almost every scene of this film. Yeah. And, and had we had an actor who was you know, not of her caliber... I don't know that the film, despite any effort I could make, would have ever been as, uh, you know, worked as well as it does, uh, purely just due to how magnetic and engaging Emma is to watch on screen, where, you know, I'm still, I'm still just so grateful that she did this movie. She commands so. the screen. When she is on, there's something about her, I think a lot of it is in her eyes and in her facial expressiveness of determination. She, yes, every- she is able to. She's able to do so many things at once. She's able to be both somebody who is in desperate need of connection and and exudes vulnerability, while also being kind of brassy and pushy and impetuous, and also being a little obnoxious. But she saves it with a certain amount of of intellectual charm. Mm-hmm. And I think that Emma manages to do all of that in virtually every scene she's in. So. Sometimes even when the character can be, do something that is, you know, not so, you know, that can be kind of grating or that can be kind of off-putting, Emma still finds a way to make it feel really human and identifiable, and I'm just, I'm just an author. Well, and this is something that a lot of, you know, adults can relate to if they remember what they were like at 16, and a lot of teens uh, can definitely relate to because she doesn't know who she is. None, let's face it, none of us know who we are or were at 16. Um, <laughs> True. And she's in an interesting dynamic with her parents and a younger sibling, and she always feels like the odd man out. Because all this attention gets, you know, lofted onto her younger sister, but not yeah, her. Yeah, so the twin sisters are, yeah, are, are, are just sort of easier for her parents to love. As we learn in the sort of first act of the movie, they're less complicated. Mm -hmm. They don't bring a certain kind of emotional baggage with them because of how they came to be. And, and, you know, Alex is always fighting against the current. She's always pushing back. She makes things hard. And I think they love her dearly, but I think that they don't always know what to do with her. And I think that's a very common situation to find with a teenage kid. That wasn't how I was, really. I was more of a pain when I was a little kid. But... uh, (laughs) By the time I was 16, I was pretty easy for my folks. But I've seen that. I've seen that, and I, and I saw it among you know, people I knew and people I've seen as I've gotten older and, and now being you know, an adult hearing my friends, uh, slightly older friends, talk about their teenage kids. So Look what you have to look for, and look what you have to look forward to with a new baby now. <laughs> yeah, I know. In about 16 years, she's going to be telling me she doesn't, I don't get her at all. <laughs> and you're just going to... What you do then is you pull out this film and you say, here, watch this. I do get it. Exactly. That's the plan. That, this is actually all a plan to make sure that if I had a daughter at some point, I was going to be able to pull one up on her when she told me okay. I get it. Well, you have, you've perfectly done that. But I love the structuring of this film. And, and for me, because I just rewatched it again last night, um... I liked it even more the second time. I had watched oh, wow. it. I had, I had watched it twice already before we spoke last March. But 
now I watched it again with fresh eyes. And I really, I enjoyed it even more. And it might be because I was picking up on even more things, such as the relationship between Alex and her mother, Judith, who was beautifully played by Alyssa Milano. Uh, (laughs) And also Alex and her biological dad, Carl, played by Devin Sewa, who it's like, Yes, please, with the two of them on screen, um, watching them navigate waters. Um, And then, because you have this all wrapped in a beautiful, beautiful visual package. You know, I said said it before, and and I've got to say it again. Bobby Lamb, as your cinematographer, has done an amazing job with the lighting and the visual, uh, the lensing and the visual grammar itself, the yeah, two of you, I mean, you guys really know how to use the tools in the cinema, cinematographic toolbox to tell a story. It's not point and shoot. What you, the lighting, for example, out at the mobile home or trailer that Carl's father lives in with the outdoor lights strung uh, as a canopy and then the fire pit and a raging fire. It is stunning. And it's very metaphoric because it's like almost like Carl's burning down his own house by coming and confronting his father. Um, Is Alex burning down her own house? By even being there. But it's so beautiful. You can't look away, which makes you pay attention even more. Well, that is wonderful to hear. And, and I think that, you know, we were, Bobby Lamb is, in addition to being an extraordinarily nice guy, he is one of the most technically savvy people I've met, but he also completely backs it up with a really keen narrative sense. You know, we were. One of the things with a movie like this, when you don't have a lot of money to play with, or almost any, is we had to be very deliberate about our choices and very deliberate about our strategy. And that involved roping in a, uh, the whole visual team to come up with a very unified and coherent uh, approach towards the visuals of the movie. So I have to also credit Sean Roney, who did the uh, production design, and Julie Carnahan, our costume designer, because I think that when we found uh, that location, we, we all were sort of working in unison to come up with a way to bring that stuff about the way that you're describing it, that this feeling of it being, you know, visually striking, but also foreboding and ominous mm-hmm. and a, a certain sense of like, are you go, you know, you're literally playing with fire and what's going to happen here. There's a sense of danger that comes from, uh, Duffy Epstein, no relation, but a wonderful actor, uh, Duffy Epstein's character. Mm-hmm. So I think that Bobby Lamb is just knocks it out of the park in every scene. It truly, and so much of this is about setting the visual tone, the visual tonal bandwidth, because you've got distinct worlds that you've created. You have the world that Alex has at home with her parents, Judith and Carrie, you know, Alyssa Milano, and then playing opposite John Ailes, um, it's white, it's bright, yet her room feels very claustrophobic, the way that it's shot. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I love the fact that it has, you know, the vaulted ceiling that goes, you know, it's the attics on the other side, folks. So <laughs> the healing, the ceiling slants down. Um, so that makes it even more like the walls are closing in on Alex in her life. And then she takes off in a very, very brilliant scheme um, to, you know, go in search of her biological father and ends up at his house, which is actually uh, it's owned by his quote-unquote cousin, Sarah, who's beautifully played by Yardley Smith. And that is so... It's plain. It's filled with despair almost. It's a blank canvas. But for all the crosses that we see. <laughs> well, because she, uh, that, that place has a different... Uh, the way that I wanted that place to feel... And I think, uh, you know, we happen to find the right house. I, I, our, our locations person, Dallas Brown, found this house on um, uh, Airbnb. And what we wanted it to feel like was kind of an old, faded photograph you would see in a scrapbook. Mm -hmm. Something that had a certain antiquated texture that also felt like it was kind of, you know, in the past. It felt a little distant. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of where Carl and Sarah live. I mean, I think that they are... Neither of them are characters who are completely in the world, although they're sort of trying. I think Sarah's yeah. trying harder than Carl is. I think Carl's a little scared of the world. But we wanted it to feel visually different than, as you describe, the sort of bluish hues of, of Portland. And some of what you do in an in indie like this is just play to what the, um, you know, design the shots based on the locations you're right. able to get. So some of the stuff that you picked up on in Portland with her room, you know, that was where we, uh, that's, that's what we had. And so we try. We say, okay, how can we lean into it? How can we help that serve the vision of this film? Mm -hmm. And and it works so well. And but the house that Sarah and Carl live in, it is. It's all. It's it feels antiquated. You look at the costuming for Yardley's character of Sarah, and it's the kind of stuff that in the 1950s, if your mother had dressed you <laughs> like that and sent you to school, you'd go hide in a locker. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Yardley said, I don't really, I would never dress like this, but Sarah would. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and, you know, down to her hair, perfectly quaffed. You can tell that she sets it on rollers every night. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But all these little details and, you know, wearing her pearls. Uh, so, you know, they play and they really build the world. And what you and Bobby do with the lighting and with your framing is you create each world yet Alex is the umbilical cord that ties them all together. Yes. Yes. Because she's a person who really comes from one world into another world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, has she not, you know, you know, made this impulsive decision to try to seduce her English teacher. She probably <laughs> never would have, uh, this never would have happened. But because she did, it's what happens, and and we see the uh, interplay of those two different environments, and we see what happens when Alex brings them together. You know, there's there's a bit when when all the characters are in the same place, yep. sort of uh, about three quarters of the way into the film, mm -hmm. where Judith and, and and Carrie, who are wearing the sort of uh, Portland tones, you know, the blues and the grays and the blacks, yep. come into Sarah's environment, which is you know warm um, browns and ambers and gold. Mm -hmm. And there's something kind of striking. They feel out of place there. 
Mm-hmm. And that was something that we were all very deliberate about and uh, and very aware of on set. I kept talking about it, and the crew started making fun of me, which <laughs> which is it's just fair. And I think <laughs> well, you also and, and, and always good to, but yes, we were no, deliberate about it. You also carry it through into the motel where yeah. Judith and Carrie yeah. are staying because it's you know one of the most god awful ugly brown bedspreads. Um, oh yeah that I've seen but that also it's not it doesn't have like a golden patina or an antique patina like Sarah's house but it has that muddy ooh this is not our world feel yep so that's, that's true and the funny thing is you know for like again uh when when you're working on a budget like this we have to be we have to be both lucky and deliberate with our choices so we would do stuff like we got that motel and it looked perfect, but the bread spread was this, it looked like a pattern from like the eighties or something with like neon yellows and purples. Oh and my green. God. And I said, can we, can we swap out the bed spread for something? And they found, and they found exactly what you described, which was the kind of the uglier, less welcoming version of what Sarah's house looked like, but still in that world because they're still not in their own world. It, and, uh, and it works great. But the rest of it was just the motel that we shot. Wow. I think there were a, a lot of confused guests who were like, why is this film crew outside? Because there were, you know, people in the motel because <laughs> we couldn't, you know, buy out the whole place. But, uh, yeah, we, we, wow. we, were, we were very lucky to find that place. You know, we didn't get to talk about this last time when you were on. But I've got, we've got to talk about the music, about the score, about Aaron Zygman, whose work I always love. Um, and then your decision to incorporate classical music in here um, that is a respite and a prong of Carl. Talk to me about the music in this film, what you were looking for with Aaron with scoring. And not too many film directors choose to go with classical music especially in a film, in a little indie like this? Well, um, I, love, I, I grew up playing the violin, and so I have a, a deep appreciation for classical music. I don't know as much about it as I might, or as I could have, but I, I still grew up around it. And uh, so to talk about that in the narrative of it, um, the scene about Mozart versus Beethoven was something I always thought was really interesting growing up. And when Carl says he likes Mozart because it's mathematical and perfect and everything is in place, I think he might be telling himself he likes that versus Beethoven, which is the more uncontrollable, emotional, sort of darker sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, you know, classical music is great like that because it's familiar to, to people, even if they can't place it exactly. And it's uh, costs no money because it's all in the public <laughs> domain. Um, but for... Uh, and I thought, it, I thought it, it spoke to his character. You know, it, it showed a certain type of restless intelligence that lived with a guy who never really tried to do as much with it, or he tried when he was young, and for a lot of reasons it didn't work out, but there's still a part of him that is uh, emotionally uh, restless, or intellectually restless, rather. And then the actual score we have by Aaron is it's just so incredible, and he really elevates the movie with, mm-hmm. with it. And one of the things that, that we talked about was trying to come up with something that was really... Uh, like the lens, like what, like what I said with Bobby, really from Alex's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, the music is, is t- 
telling you is an insight into her feelings when she is not being as honest with them as she could be with her words. Right. The music is kind of saying where she is. So uh, I think that there's a certain vulnerability to the music. There's a certain hopefulness. There's a certain expectation to it without it becoming cheesy or maudlin. It is never cheesy. Beautiful. Never cheesy. No, I mean, uh, the score itself is beautiful. but And the fact that it doesn't feel disjointed or out of place with the classical music, that's a delicate balance to watch, uh, you know, to come up with. But Aaron does that so well, and I've seen other films where he's done that too. And well, it just, it works so beautifully when you have an emotional structure like what Who Are You People has. Yes, again, you know, I, I, Aaron was a real find because I, I didn't, you know, he's obviously done much, much bigger movies on a huge scale. And he's really in demand. He's a real artist. But my producer, uh, Jordan Foley, knew him and they had worked together on some stuff before. So he slipped in the movie and, and Aaron responded to it. And he, he took the work on this just as seriously as he takes anything on a, on a much grander scale in terms of budget. And I think that it really helps this movie feel um, big in the right way. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, this whole, everybody in this movie is trying to fit in. Okay, except yeah. maybe Carrie. <laughs> except for maybe Carrie. Um, but yeah. e everybody yeah. is trying to find themselves and find where they fit um, in the world, to be blunt, in the world. Yeah. Um, not j and then intersecting with these people that are in their immediate orbit. Um, that's one of the things that, that I love about Reed Miller's character of Arthur, who Alex meets when she is visiting with Carl and Sarah. And they mm -hmm. are essentially two kindred spirits, but Arthur is the one who has eyes wide open. Whereas Alex is yes. still finding her footing. And you always need somebody like that who's our guide, in, who clarifies things for us, so to speak, uh, in a situation like this. And Reed just knocks it out of the park in that role. And I love that character. I love the character oh. of Arthur when I first saw the film. Again, last night just jumped out at me. I I really Reed has love such that. a great ah. he has such great presence on screen and he really found ways to make the characters but both you know, he there's a certain mirror in Alex, as you said. He's both he has some of her, a lot of her vulnerability and a lot of her acerbicness too. Mm -hmm. But he's also maybe a little bit more self aware. And I think that some of the things that he says about himself are ways of getting at you know, beating anyone to the punch. So when we shot those scenes, and, and those were the uh, very first couple of days of shooting. Wow. With, um, all the stuff with Arthur. Yeah, like the, the st their conversation outside the church was uh, the first day of shooting. And there are scenes uh, around his house were, I think, the second day. And what, what he does so beautifully is, can, is have that, that toughness and that vulnerability and the sort of 
unanswerable questions about himself, too, because I'm not sure he knows where he fits in. I'm not sure. If, I, I know he's certainly intrigued by, uh, by Alex. Whether or not he's romantically interested in her or whether or not he wants to be is something that, you know, Reed and I discussed and, and sort of concluded that it didn't really matter that we answer it. There's a right. lot of unanswered questions in this movie. Uh, and that's one of them, I think. But, you know, and that's just part of life. It's the unanswered yes, questions. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I would be remiss not to ask you about how the distribution process worked for you on the festival circuit. And then you're, you're looking for a distributor. Did distributors come to, to you? What was this process like? to end well, up with Gravitas, well, and then what have you had to do to complete that distribution process? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great question, and I think very informative for indie filmmakers. Uh, what it meant was actually, it was both a lot of waiting and then happened very quickly. Basically, we had been with a very, one of the top um, sales agents in the business, you know, that, that does much bigger films. Mm-hmm. And I think that even though they were fans of the movie and were sending it around, I don't think that they were sending it around as aggressively. Uh, and because, you know, when you're dealing with stuff, you know, just because of the finances of it, when you're dealing with something where the, 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 the guaranteed, uh, the money guaranteed isn't going to be as high, it's never as much right. of a priority. So at one point we, we were, uh, Toby Louie, one of the producers of the film, was uh, reached out to by a guy named Matt Shredder at Concourse Media. And Matt and Concourse is a sort of up and coming, very hungry, very aggressive, extremely nim- like nimble, good sales agent company. There's there a lot of stuff coming out, and they also do uh, financing and, and and stuff. And they said, you know, we heard about this movie. Can we watch it? And Matt responded and then said, Look, I think that I. He said, I we can sell this movie. Here's who we should target, and I can get this done by this date. And it was about like six weeks away from when. He, and and so we said, Okay, great. So he cut a trailer. And we put a you know, contract together, and we, we took it away from the bigger, uh, the bigger fish. And then Matt came back from um, Chiff and said, we have three offers. Or we have four <laughs> offers or something. And Gravitas was the, was the one with the highest offer. And, and it was amazing how quickly it happened after having waited for so long. So I think what it, what it shows is that you really need to find the right fit for the people who are passionate about the film and say that they can get it done. Now, I, 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 and then once... We sold it. It was like September, and now it's February, and the film's out. Look at that. And that's a fairly That's a quick. Turnaround. That's a quick turn. Yeah. The fact that you were on the festival circuit at this time last year, and yeah. now you're in theaters, that is, you know, it is a quick turnaround. And I think sure. that part of it is because, you know, distributors were running out of product during lockdown and theater lockdown and shooting lockdowns. And it could be that now everybody thinks, okay, maybe we need to start stockpiling stuff. We, we need to start getting some properties here to keep the pipeline going. Uh, cause, yeah. Cause I know during, you- during the, the pandemic, I talked to pr- some producers and they were like, Debbie, you know, anybody who has a film that might not be quite done yet that we can help them get it done because there's only, you know, like two more months worth of, of product in the pipeline. Yep. Um, so I think you could be, you could be, have benefited greatly um, by coming out on the back end, you know, of the pandemic 
and the theater sure, and the sure. theater I mean, situation. We, we were, the timing of this of a film like this was, you know, has to be serendipitous and it has to be seen by the right people at the right time. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, all the credit to Matt Shredder at, at Concourse because I think that he made that happen. And and you know, we're just so grateful for that because you know it's it's wonderful to have the film out there. It's great to see you know. People text me a picture and they say, hey, I'm on Apple Trailers. This is on the homepage, you know. There's, and, and you know, we, we, we hope that the film gets out there and is seen and that, you know, people like it. That's all you can hope for, really, when you make something like this. Well, I like it. And <laughs> I you. still like it. Um, and it's the kind of film that, yes, people are going to like it. It, it is, it's... It, you don't beat anybody over the head with it, with any, you know, really tough, horrid themes. But these are these are concepts. These are themes. These are something that all of us have faced at some point in our lives. Um, some of us it might be in the distant past, but still, um, sure, it's sure. very relatable, very resonant, um, and you've got great, great talent in this film. From Alyssa to yes. Emma to Devin to Yardley uh, to Reed, my God. Um, it's the- a really great cast. And I think another thing that's great about making movies like this is that when the actors of these calibers show up, they're showing up because they, they are excited by the material yep. and excited to do, to do something needy. You know, uh, Peter Peros, who plays Reggie, the sheriff, who's, mm-hmm. who's just terrific. Uh, you know, it's done so much TV, and I think he was just hungry to do a feature. And yeah. he really came in prepared and thoughtful with good questions and good insights. And everybody was like that. You know, we, we only had 20 days to make this, and we had to move very, very quickly and very deliberately. And I think that uh, we benefited from the interest of this cast and, and the attention and care they brought to it. Well, it shows on screen, Ben. I am so thrilled for you that you and who are you people have made it um, with the release. People can see it in theaters, VOD, some digital platforms. It's exciting, and I'm excited for you. Thank you. Thank you. It's really fun to talk to you again. It's much happier. (laughs) It's so happy to talk to you under these circumstances. And yes, the film's available. iTunes, Voodoo, Google Play, Amazon. All the usual suspects. (laughs) All the usual suspects. So are you working on anything else right now? You got to have a follow-up. Of course. uh, I do have a a couple. You know, I have a script that's been done for a a minute that I have uh, been talking with a sort of a pretty big league producer about, and hopefully that'll materialize sooner than later. Um, I'm writing a couple other projects at the moment that are, one is almost done and one is, you know, in its infancy, but I think it's always good to have a lot of Mm -hmm. scripts ready to go. Um, You know, at the moment, I'm a little bit stalled because I have this uh, little baby at home. This little person, yes. so I'm changing a lot of diapers and wiping off a lot of spit up. But when that's done... I'm going to be able to, not done, but when I have a little bit more help, I'm going to um, be able to jump back in and hopefully start laying the groundwork for the next uh, next film. Well, I can't wait to see whatever that next film may be. And you definitely, you know, you can come back on the show anytime you want. You know that. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> this is fun. I love it. 
Oh, Ben. I love it. I, I, I'm, I'm walking a little taller. My self-esteem's a little higher. It's great. No, I, this, this is a, a blast. And it's so fun. It's always fun to talk to people who connect to the work you're making and who, who, who are picking up what you're putting down. So thank you so much for the kind words and for having me back. Oh, Ben, open invitation anytime. I can't wait for the next time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Uh, go play with that adorable little child that you have. I will. Jesus, I've heard a little crying. <laughs> so well, pick her up, but, go pick her up. No, someone up. else is holding her. I'm not, she's not just crying by herself. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe she's crying we're not, we're because she, maybe she's crying because the other person is holding her. <laughs> and she wants you. Yeah, she, she likes everybody who holds her. Oh. I'll, 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 I'll go attend to her shortly. Oh. Well, all the best to you, Ben. And again, I can't wait for the Thank next so time. Much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for getting this out there in the world. So so uh, much appreciated. Thanks, Debbie. Talk soon, I hope. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Ben Epstein, writer-director of Who Are You People? And it's in theaters and on all, all the usual suspect platforms right now. So, and it really is. It's a charming film, uh, and I do recommend that you see it. Uh, if you're looking for alternatives, it's a nice, quiet little drama. Check it out. And now, as promised, we will go back and we will pick up the second part. I think it's what, the last 10 minutes of my interview with Jimmy Warden. And by the way, you will be able to hear the whole interview in its entirety, uninterrupted, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Apparently, the video for it is being worked on right now. So, we shall see. But... Let's finish up and finish out the show with Cocaine Bear and more from screenwriter Jimmy Warden. And how you and Elizabeth worked and developed and collaborated on that. I've got to ask you, you know, where did you even hear about this fascinating Cocaine Bear story? Um, I was, uh, I was doing what screenwriters often do and not screenwriting <laughs> I was staring I was staring at an empty page on a project that I was supposed to be working on and I was kind of just scrolling through Twitter and I came up upon the story and I had never heard of it before um, and then I just went down like a, a rabbit hole and couldn't stop I was just inhaling everything about the story but again, I just could not get out of the back, the back of my mind. Something was just itching me um, and telling me that I needed to, to make this about the cocaine bear. <laughs> uh, Were you blown away when you actually found the, the, the story, the true story? Of course, yeah. And honestly, like, I'm a big fan of the podcast and the books, and I think they're making a doc on it. The, like I'm a big fan of all that stuff I just don't I thought that I was um, fit to write the story about a, a rampaging bear high on cocaine in the, in the Chattahoochee <laughs> um, and I would leave I think that there are other people more fit to deal with the uh, conspiracy and, and the Andrew Carter Thornton of it all um, but you know I wanted my priority for this and I hope that we 
paint it off, and I hope audiences agree, but we just wanted everybody to have fun, you know? Um, and, you know, it's the, the type of thing that we kind of need post-pandemic. It's just like, it's going to the theaters with your friends and just hoping to be entertained. I hope we pulled that off. Oh, I think you definitely did. <laughs> yes, I love to hear that. <laughs> So a general writing question for you, Jimmy, because I know you've got another film that's going to be coming up that you're also directing, I think. I'm yeah. curious, what is your process, your writing process? For example, with Cocaine Bear, how long did it take you to come to craft the script before you started collaborating with Elizabeth? Um, the, the script was finished before... Elizabeth came on mm -hmm. um, but in terms of my process I I read the story I had to finish like I was saying I had to finish another job um, and I kind of and this is what I usually do it's like if I think of an idea I kind of I let it sit for a while until it forms um, not to be too like pretentious about it but like that I don't I don't outline or anything um, I just, uh, or at least for, for most things, I don't. So once it, you know, I read the story, I knew that I wanted to do the cocaine bear story and I knew I wanted to take significant, you know, creative liberties on the true story. So then I let it sit for about a month. And then once I had it in my mind, sort of plotted, uh, plotted out, then, then I wrote the script and then it didn't take me very long. Um, uh, and, you know, then, then I gave it to Brian Duffield, who's a producer on this movie, and he wrote The First Babysitter, and we know each other for, we've known each other for a really long time. Um, and then he gave it to the, you know, some of the best people who, in the business, who, who can deal with this type of, you know, genre clash and weird, weird storytelling in Lord and Miller and you know they were the perfect partners and they took it into Universal and just like championed it from the very beginning and, and then we brought Liz on and Liz brought her own you know uh, taste to the mix and it only fit in terms of a collaboration but those are that's usually uh, in terms of the writing process and it, when you like in terms of borderline which is the movie that you were just speaking about mm -hmm. that i directed last year in vancouver um that's usually how i do it like i'll think of an idea and then i'll sort of just let if i'm not doing if i'm not writing it for somebody else like if i'm doing this on spec um then i'll just kind of let i'll just try to have as much fun with the writing process as possible and entertain myself first and foremost um, and that's proved to be, you know, a, a, a pretty good way to do it. Mm -hmm. So now at the end of the day, as, as Cocaine Bear is about to be released on the world, what did you learn about yourself as a screenwriter and as a filmmaker since you're moving into directing with Borderline? What did you learn about yourself that you can now take forward and will take forward into your future projects. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really 
good and uh, deep question. <laughs> Normally, I don't try to think that much, um, but I think that what I what I learned is how fun. Like, you know, I think that screenwriters can generally be pretty sensitive people, and I, I'm no different. But what I've learned from Cocaine Bear and then into directing my own movie that is that you know you really want to be working with people who have better ideas than you do you know because at the end of the day it's like it's just it's not about the idea it's about the end it's about the end product um sorry that's my that's my crazy dog um so so to me it's like i love I adored the process on Cocaine Bear, and I adored the process on Borderline. Um, so that's kind of what I'll look to, and that's just about the collaborators and the people that I'm working with. So that's what I'll continue to look for when I'm finding a new project. And will we see you stepping behind the director's chair, sitting in the director's chair more often? I hope so, yeah. I hope so. I mean, um, I hope that we get to talk once you see... Uh, my uh other movie borderline i can't wait to yeah. see what happens with you wearing multiple hats and having to decide do i kill my darling words what do i do that's all it's always a tough call for a writer director it's it's so funny because and just like i'll just say that like in directing my own like something that i've written um i really learned that you know how unprecious you have to be how easy it is to let go of you know <laughs> dialogue or what seems like just based on a production schedule um and when you have to lead an entire crew and everybody's looking at you and you have five pages to shoot and you only have and the sun's going down <laughs> um you know you have to adjust and not everything is just because you know you like somebody didn't like your idea, there's so many other factors and so many other departments that go into everything that you see on screen. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I, I mean, I love I love both. I love still writing with other directors for other directors who I can continue to learn from, and then I would love to continue to write my own things for uh, to direct myself. Well, I can't wait to see Borderline and to what the future holds for you. Might that future have a Cocaine Bear sequel? I hope so. We'll see. It depends how many friends you take next week. Please uh, take all your friends and, you know, I, I, I can't thank you enough for all of your support. Like, this has been such a fun conversation. Oh, Jimmy, this is such a fun movie. I love it, love it, love it. As I said at the top, I love the Babysitter franchise. I love what you did uh, writing Killer Queen so imaginative uh in many respects but here you just balls to the wall brilliance i love this i love cocaine bear um well thank you so much that's the nicest thing this has been such a fun conversation thank you and that was jimmy warden screenwriter of cocaine bear well that is definitely all the time we have today. We'll be back next week. We're going to take a trip into the past. 
uh, with Emilio Palame and Knights of Swing. I'm looking forward to that one. But in the meantime, who are you people out in theaters and on all the, the digital platforms, VOD, Cocaine Bear, theaters only. <clears throat> See it all. And, of course, Wednesday, Disney Plus, The Mandalorian, and Baby Yoda, a.k.a. Grogu, is back. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.